Hi folks. Um, firstly, apologies on the slight delay for this podcast. Uh, I've been a little bit busy in home life, all good, but just uh, the reality of the day-to-day keeping me a little bit busy. Um, but today I want to talk about the, I guess, ideal seven games that I would own if I could only own seven games. And um, I know a lot of people have been doing lists of 10 and I totally get that makes sense. But I thought, you know, why not like squeeze a lemon a little bit more and see if we can whittle it down to seven. So these aren't in any order in terms of which ones I prefer. It's just a listing. Um, and I think the other thing to keep in mind is the parameters for this list. So first of all, um, this doesn't preclude me from playing games with other people, uh, other games with other people at board game cafes, etc., etc. These aren't like the only seven games, the, the seven games that I'll play for the rest of my life. It's just the only seven games that I would choose to own in my collection. Um, so those are the kind of two key things to make clear. The other thing is that um, I am not counting in expansions. Um, so it, some of the games I'm going to talk about do have expansions, and I would just classify those under the base game. So uh, that's a couple of the sort of uh, details just before we kick off. Um, but let's dive straight in. So the, the first game I want to talk about uh, in my If I Could Only Own 7 Games list is Root. Root uh, is a game that really just, I think, um, you know, obviously took the board game world by storm. But for me in particular, it was quite an eye-opener. Uh, I was relatively new to the designer's uh, games called Whirly. Um, and I was very new to kind of coin or war style games in general. And um, kind of being introduced to both of those elements together and a game that had such a symmetry baked in was, was really, really just fascinating and eye-opening for me. And... Um, there's just something so satisfying about this game, the way you kind of uh, uh, sort of imbue the kind of personality and the uh, nature of your chosen faction. You kind of can really psychologically get into the headspace of your faction and, and they all have their own nuances and, and their own sort of uh, styles, which is, which is fantastic. And then that's kind of carried out in terms of the gameplay, the way you play, the way you uh, uh, sort of uh, attack your opponents and establish victory points for yourself and all those kind of cool things. It's just got so much character to it and the visuals are absolutely stunning. Really, really beautiful artwork. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just one of those games. Now, as I was saying in the intro, you know, expansions are something that I would be uh, classifying within the base game. And I think here in Root, they're really critical. Um, not that there's anything wrong with a base game, but I think in my personal play style uh, at home, I'm mostly doing two-player or solo-player uh, gaming. And some of the expansions that have come out and some of the ones that are yet to come, the Marauder uh, expansion in particular, uh, are going to make the game really work well and, and, and more suitably, I think, for my personal style of gaming. Uh, but maintain that ability to go and play with, you know, four players, et cetera, et cetera, or beyond um, where, where possible and um, get the most out of the game. So Root is just one of those games I think it has, with the expansions, and I'm sure there'll be more to come, uh, that kind of longevity that is really going to make it a game that I can proudly have in my uh, top seven or only seven board game collection. The next one is quite a different game, sort of the, the other end of the spectrum, um, a, a tar lane game with absolutely beautiful physical components, and that is Azul. 
And in here, I'm actually talking about the first original uh, version of Azul. I haven't actually been able to play Queen's Garden yet, but that does look quite interesting. But I love the, the, the chunky Bakelite tiles for this game. I love the visuals. I love the simplicity of it, but the kind of hidden depth that it, uh, it sort of offers as well. And um, it's just one of those games that, you know, I... Um, would would sort of keep coming back to and it's kind of a nice length and level of complexity that you can kind of pull it out after after a meal or you know on a lazy afternoon time provided and and just really have a fun board gaming experience um i i don't really consider obviously the the other games in the azul line expansions there have been expansions or add-ons for a couple of the core games but um you know maybe there's a little bit of a fine or gray line there but i specifically i guess i would, I would look at the first one as the one of choice here. But yeah, Azul, fantastic game. The next game in my list is kind of the sort of um, classical Euro game uh, candidate. Although I think this one has a little bit of spice to it that that makes it especially interesting. And that's Castles of Burgundy. Uh, and I guess I'd be looking at the newer edition that has a lot of the expansions and promo uh, elements as well as the solo player mode, which really makes it quite flexible. And um, you know, I think the coolest thing about this game for me is is the way it integrates dice. You know, I, I really sort of like dice in theory. I think um, pre sort of hobby gaming, dice is always kind of a fun mechanism. And even playing games like Yahtzee, um, you know, there's that just fun of, of the chance, rolling the dice, seeing what you get. And I, and I love the way that Castles of Burgundy kind of builds this whole structure around that sort of very randomized act of rolling dice. Uh, but it gives you enough control that you feel like you can make intelligent decisions. And there's sort of other dynamics to the game um, uh, that, that are really interesting as well. And I think this sort of pattern building, uh, you know, uh, with the different shapes is also really, really interesting. It's not super complicated, but it's, also, but it's still really, really satisfying when you can kind of get the right sort of, build the right sort of territories and, and, and map those out and, and maximize your point scoring. And it's one of those games that I think you feel like you can keep coming back to and trying different strategies and different approaches. So um, I, I think in particular with a new edition, with the solo playing the additional content, it's, it's a no-brainer. So the next game is kind of um, what I would say the kind of uh, skirmish candidate in the list, uh, and that is Unmatched. Um, uh, and by uh, and by that, I think I'm I'm really flexing the rules a little bit harder on this particular choice um, because I would probably factor in all of the games in the uh, the system as uh, you know going under unmatched. I mean, um, uh, you know that's kind of a, a cheat, but I think Restoration Games did a fantastic job with bringing this this game system back and i think i would just you know as i said kind of smudge the rules here a little bit and and allow myself to own multiple versions of the unmatched game system because i think at the core they're very much the same game uh, with the same sort of underlying systems but you get a lot of different variety and flavor by playing different types of characters and you know this was a game that really kind of threw me when i first played it. i've only played the cobble and fog edition um, that was kind of the one uh, where the theme really appealed to me the most. But it was a game where I couldn't really get it at first. It just seemed super simple and super basic and kind of boring, you know, in terms of the gameplay, you know, move, hit, move, hit, and see which one of you dies first. Um, but then as I started playing it more and more and more, 
the nuance really started to to shine through and I realized just how much of an intelligent game it was and how well the different characters uh, decks uh, and sort of styles of, of, of combat and play were so um, interestingly fine-tuned and balanced so um, it's just a just a fun uh, visually beautiful stunning uh, game uh, a game system and I, I'm really curious to explore some of the other different games in the series so uh, that would be my choice there for kind of a head-to-head combat game number four unmatched um, I may have forgotten to mention the numbers for the other games I, I just talked about but anyway unmatched is number four so the next one is also kind of a head-to-head game, um, a little bit more classical, a little bit more old school, uh, sort of chess flavored or inspired here, and that's Onitama. Uh, I did actually consider Hive for this, but I'll talk in a minute about why I didn't go with choosing Hive. Um, but Onitama uh, is a game that, you know, it's a few years old now, but I remember when it kind of came out to the scene, it really, really sort of created a lot of waves, really beautiful, you know, looking game, nicely produced. I love this sort of uh, neoprene mat that it comes with and the chunky figurines um, that you use and it's got this kind of chess uh, flavor to it and um, you know the other thing that's kind of interesting here is that you and your opponent are dealing with the same resources to to beat each other the 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 sets of cards that you have are shared between you and the way you can really sort of uh, perfect the timing in this game is so challenging but also so rewarding and um, it's just a game that my wife really enjoyed it when we played it um, it's one that you can kind of uh, take out with you when when that was, I suppose, more possible in the before times. But, you know, you could take it to a coffee shop or a pub or whatever and, and sit down and, you know, it's got a relatively uh, small footprint, but also very sturdy components. So, um, yeah, just a really, really fun game. And and to go back to, to, to Hive, I really love Hive. Um, and it's, it's a fantastic game. But I think it's one of those games where if you have somebody who's played it more, it's very hard to beat them and have a rewarding game experience for both players. And I've played Hive hundreds of hundreds of times online, so I think I've, you know, uh, you know, by no means do I would I consider myself to be an amazing player at it. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm probably much better at it than anybody who was would be coming to it the first sort of time or so. And although my wife has played it, my wife is, you know, by the way, my my main sort of two player uh, partner uh, for board games in general, but. Although she's played it a few times, I think it would just the, the imbalance there would be so great it just wouldn't make sense. So Onitama is one where I think the randomness and the shared information leads to a little bit more of a level playing field. Um, so that's number five, Onitama. Number six is one of those games where it you know after playing it it just really kind of stayed with me as a game that that really impressed me, uh, and it sort of I guess fills the worker placement slot in the list. And that's Snowdonia. Uh, I've only played the original uh, flavor. I haven't played the sort of deluxe edition. But I guess for the purposes of this list, I would most likely have uh, purchased the uh, deluxe master set because it has a huge amount of content and uh, a lot of you know good support for solo play. Although I, first, I think the original also supported solo play. But Snowdonia is kind of this Goldilocks game for me where the complexity to reward ratio is so perfectly tuned that uh, it just makes for a really, really fun game experience. Uh, I, I really enjoy the theme as well. I like that sort of industrial era theme and uh, you know building out train lines in the Welsh countryside. Uh, it's quite whimsical and, and you know enjoyable from a theme perspective. But just the way it works, there's enough little twists and enough little turns uh, and enough little details to make it satisfying, but it's not overwhelmingly so. Uh, and I think you know that kind of Goldilocks element to the game um, 
just just really sort of uh, made it sing for me. And I, and I guess longevity is perhaps a question. I haven't played this game a huge number of times, and I don't actually own it um, currently. But I'm hoping that if I, you know, in this scenario where I can only own seven games, that I would have had the master set, and that would have enough content to really add the longevity there. So Snowdonia, my number six. Moving on to number seven, this is actually probably one of me and my wife's most played board games. Uh, my wife really, really enjoys it. Uh, it's sort of not quite as um, you know high uh, up on the list of my favorite games as it once was, but I still really, really enjoy it. There's something just special about how all the components come together for this, and that's Terraforming Mars. Um, the kind of original base game, uh, again, augmented with the different expansions. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively complex game at first brush, but I think after you've played it a few times, and certainly in the case of me and my wife, we've really gotten used to playing it and, and understanding it quite well. Uh, we've even gotten the time down pretty, pretty sort of, you know, tight in terms of how long a two-player game takes us. We can usually get it done in about an hour and a half, uh, an hour and 20 minutes or so. And I think there's just something about, you know, the starting off with a specific corporation with a, with a you know, asymmetrical ability, the depth of kind of uh, cards that you can play and use and, and just the kind of stories they tell about the technology, you know, tracks that you're taking and the sort of different political and financial decisions that you might take um, as a kind of corporation looking to colonize Mars. And there's a really interesting story that that's gets woven through there and, you know, Sci-fi, especially kind of harder or more realistic or near or near future sci-fi is probably my favorite, number one favorite theme. So that really boosts this as well. And I think the other thing that's really critical about this is for a sort of Euro style game, the interaction on the map uh, really is kind of the icing or the cherry on the cake for me here. The fact that you kind of have to jockey for position and you know think carefully about where you place your cities and where you place greenery and all these other kind of things uh, means that there's this extra dimension of interactivity, which is a lot of fun and stops it from being this kind of uh, solitaire, uh, multiplayer solitaire experience, um, you know, where you're just kind of looking at optimizing your own production and your own little tableau, and you're not really bothered about what everybody else does. I mean, there is a big chunk of the game that is around that, but that map really just kind of makes it sing. Um, and again, it's one of those games that, you know, we've played so many times already. I, I think I'd imagine it being very hard getting getting rid of this game. So um, that was my my last game in the list, number seven, uh, Terraforming Mars. Um, you know, obviously, I think this this kind of list is, is a bit of a academic exercise, right? You know, where's the line that you should draw in terms of your, your board game collection size? I mean, I've always tried to stay around the 30 mark. I'm now at around 50 games. Uh, you know, I talk, talked about this sort of post-pandemic uh, expansion in my board game collection in my earlier podcast. But, you know... I think sort of ideologically 10, 15 games would be a great target for me to get my collection down to. Um, seven would probably be a little bit too brutal even for me, to be honest. Um, but I think it was an interesting exercise to go through and just think about what could those seven games be. And I do think the list that I put together does offer a huge amount of flexibility and uh, you know gameplay there. I didn't include sort of typical party games, et cetera, et cetera. Those, those probably would have been there uh, if I had more slots. And I guess with that in mind, I, I wanted to mention some kind of honorable mentions, games that I'd be really you know curious to add on the list. I haven't played all of these, but these are certainly games that um, catch my attention and ones that I probably would have put in the list if I had a little bit more space. Um, 
So one of the first ones I would have added was would be Spirit Island. Now I've never actually played this game, but I've researched it and watched playthroughs for the past few years because it's one that's definitely firmly fixed to my must-buy list. I just haven't gotten around to getting it yet. At some moments here in the UK, it's kind of been difficult to find. And then uh, I just really haven't had the time or the energy to kind of dive into it. But this is a game that I think just looks, you know, so interesting. The theme is, is really cool and the sort of gameplay, uh, you know, the way that all works together is, you know, potentially really, really interesting. So Spirit Island would be my first honorable mention. The next one would be um, uh, Babylonia, one that I haven't played either, but you know it looks like a very solid uh, Reiner Knizia uh, sort of uh, uh, game. You know that sort of typical sort of um, abstract style board game that has a lot of replayability, simple rules, but um, you know a lot of uh, brain burning decisions. That's another uh, game on my honorable mentions list. Uh, number three on my honorable mentions list would actually be uh, probably Quacks of Quidlingburg, which is a game that um, you know I just found to be so fun, so enjoyable. Um, I played it, you know, quite a few times. It's very light, very breezy, but it, it, there's something about it that's just really, really, uh, you know, I find really enjoyable. Um, my uh, number four, I guess, is number four now. It would be Imperium Classics and Legends. So I bought both sets of this game, Classics and Legends, um, earlier this year. Really enjoyed uh, this as a game, uh, the kind of ability to tell the story of civilization building um, within a relatively uh, compact space of time compared to other civilization games, not other normal board games, but uh, in a relatively sort of elegantly uh, and efficiently designed deck building package is really, really impressive. And it's also got very solid solo gameplay here. Um, I think in an ideal world, this would be a game that I could, you know, you know, find somebody who uh, would really enjoy playing it. Unfortunately, my wife is not so crazy about this game, um, but, um, you know, that's probably why I didn't make the list, but I really enjoyed it. And it's one of those games that I'd love to just find somebody to play it with on a regular basis. So you could really just imbibe the different sort of play styles of the different civilizations. So, um, that would be a great choice. So that was one, two, three, four, five. Would probably be something like um, Race for the Galaxy. Again, a game that I haven't really played uh, before, uh, but one that I've always noted as a really interesting game. Um, one that I think has that kind of depth of replayability as well. Uh, and I guess one of the reasons why it's stuck around so long is an inspiring game. So that that's one that I would definitely consider for my honorable mentions. A couple of other games uh, would be Barrage. Uh, Barrage is one of those games that I think is up there with probably one of the best Euro board games or economic board games that I've ever played. Uh, I think it's got sort of a certain simplicity and elegance to it, but also a lot of interactivity. The interactivity element is really, really fun. It's something that I, for me, my personal taste, a lot of Euro games or economic games uh, or Euro games in particular miss out. Um, and uh, I like the theme. Again, it's kind of this sort of, um, uh, you know, alternate future kind of 1920s, 1930s world uh, with, you know, kind of uh, big industrialists trying to harness the power of, uh, of uh, you know, a river or a waterfall. And um, yeah, it's, it's just a great game. Um, 
probably the only Uwe Rosenberg game that I was considering adding to the list was Feast for Odin. Again, a game that I haven't actually played. So these are very speculative, these honorable mentions. But it looks just like a really fantastic, you know, sort of solo gaming experience. I've watched a lot of playthroughs and, and I think uh, it could be a really fun game to add to the list. So um, that, I think, was my last honorable mention. Um, so, yeah, I guess one, two, three, four, five, six, seven or so honorable mentions on top of seven core games. So just as a reminder, those ideal seven games, uh, if I could only own seven games, were Root, Azul, Castles of Burgundy, the unmatched kind of game system, Onitama, Snowdonia, and Terraforming Mars. Um, you know, I'd love to hear from you folks, you know, what are your kind of top few games? Uh, you know, if you could only own seven or 10 or however many games, like what would be up there on the list? And I think it is a little bit different from, you know, what your favorite games might be, because I think you have to think about, um, different scenarios and different um, different kind of limitations that you might have. For me, I didn't really include party games, as I said, although obviously games for me like Six Nymphs and Llamas would be up there, Sushi, uh, Sushi uh, Go as well. So um, yeah, I'd love to just hear your opinions and uh, you know understand which kind of games you, you put at the top of the list there. Um, Cardboard Herald, who's one of my uh, favorite content creators, did a fantastic 10 player list, a 10 game list rather. And, um, you know, I definitely recommend you check that out. But uh, in the meantime, enjoy gaming and uh, take care.